You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy. Well, Australia's first offshore wind zone has been declared. We have eight big batteries funded by ARENA. Price caps for the gas industry and the coal industry, quite possibly. Will this lead to a Soviet-style economy? Can Australia reach 82% renewables by 2030 as planned? Is 1.5 degrees out of reach? Are the COP conferences achieving anything? And what about Australia's new capacity investment mechanism? Well, joining us to um, talk all about that is uh, Federal Never Energy mind what's Minister for Christmas. Chris Sorry. Cohen. Never mind what's for Christmas. I haven't even, got, I haven't even started uh, thinking about Christmas yet, though. Uh, unfortunately, there's too much on. Think about Christmas. Sound like the Grinch, don't I? Well, yeah. Look, well, I'm actually just sort of uh, recovering from the World Cup final, which uh, took four hours out of mm. my night time, and I presume so too with David. David Leach, um, ITK. Thanks for joining this last podcast of the Energy Insider series for 2022. Great to be here, and great to have such a, an honoured, honourable guest as, as Chris Barn. Thank and Chris Bowen, thank you very much for joining us from Gippsland. I understand where you've been down announcing the Australia's or declaring for well, Australia's renewable. I'm actually just zone. back. I'm just back in. I'm back at home from Gippsland, but I've been to Gippsland today. Uh, declared the zone, and uh, I've just got back in the door. Um, so big day. Offshore wind's been talked about for a long time, and uh, we talked about Gippsland for a long time and long consultation process, and I formally signed. The instrument declaring Gippsland Australia's first offshore wind zone and been down there and lots of good feedback down there today. Look, there's a lot of people playing into that um, into that zone. I mean, I could just think of a half a dozen major um, global players, um, including sort of Shell and Macquarie and um, other people. There's Star of the South, there's the Danish Orsted company, which is the biggest offshore wind developer in the world so far and hasn't actually declared which particular um, part of the zone it's interested in. Can we fit them all in and can we actually get it done quick enough? I mean, there's been a bit of feedback here that apparently we're going to have an auction and so people will, um, I'm not too sure what happens now, but um, people are very keen on getting on with their feasibility studies, but they might have to wait for another year before even getting those going. Why, Why is that? Well, um, obviously, this is very, very important for us as a country. It's very important for us as a government, very important for me as the minister, because uh, we've got a lot of catching up to do. But as I said today, publicly, I mean it, we're a long way behind, but we can lead the world. I mean, we're Australia's, well, sorry, we're the world's largest island. So the idea of not having offshore wind in a major way is just so ridiculous, it doesn't bear thinking about. Uh, but we do have a lot of catching up to do because we're coming at it late. Um, so in terms of the process, so just I don't want to bore your listeners too much, but um, so I've declared the zone. It's important to get the consultation right. So we went through a lot of consultation. Community support is important. These are sensitive issues. It is important. We take on board feedback. So um, we went out originally with a consultation zone of 27,000 square kilometres. I've reduced that down to 15,000 uh, square kilometres, which is still a very big area, but in a lot of sensitive areas, beautiful areas off. Wilson's Promontory, um, a lot of issues to work through. Um, that's not to say that we wouldn't declare that other area at some point if those community concerns and environmental issues have been worked through, but I'm not satisfied. I won't sign a, 
a declaration until I'm very satisfied. But um, so then uh, what we do is uh, having declared the zone, we'll invite federal license applications between January and April next year. So all those players you just mentioned and more will now be going through the process of applying for licenses. Uh, and then we'll, we'll obviously work that issue, you know, work those applications through and then there's state approvals and EPBC approvals. So we do have to get it right, but we are going, you know, at a rapid pace um, in our first six months. I'm sort of pleased that one of, the, one of the last things, not the last thing, but one of the last things I've done this year is to declare this zone because it's just such an important part of, of our, uh, you know, renewable energy mix going forward. As you know, Victoria's got great plans. One of the reasons we picked Gippsland as first is not just because of the, value of the offshore wind resource but just because there's so many potential players ready to go um victorian government's fully on board so it just made sense so i'm, I'm very confident we can get good runs on the board can it happen quick enough well i mean i'd love it to be happening tomorrow that's not going to happen but it will it is happening very quickly um and uh you know we're just going to keep up with that same sort of pace yeah, that's right. And so you've sort of you, you've reduced the size of that wind farm then because of sort of concerns over the western side of the Wilson's promontory. Mm. Uh, that's basically it. And so when do you think the other renewable zones are going to be declared as well? Because we've got others in in around the Portland area. There's lots of interest. There's a couple in New South Wales, and I think look, South Australia, Tasmania, and Western Australia are queuing up. But what, what's the sort of the, yeah. what, what are you measuring the that will be for this? Um, yeah, so um, I've declared, or well, I've indicated six various zones. Um, I'll have more to say about the next one in the not-too-distant future. Because we do this pretty intensively and pretty well, at this point, certainly, we do one at a time. So you know, my department and, and me don't have the bandwidth and the resources to sort of do them all at once uh, because we do have to do, get the consultation right. So we're sort of, at this point, it, it, it might change if we get more resources, but at this point, we're doing one zone at a time. So declare Gippsland and move on to the next one. Get the next one right and then move on. Um, so there will be a bit of a, a conveyor belt, um, but, you know, we're going to make very big progress on this next year. Um, we are absolutely committed. Uh, and then at the same time as, we, as I'm sort of processing the next zone, of course, by the same token, we'll be processing these applications in the Gippsland, et cetera. Um, uh, the proponents are, you know, have had a, a fair bit of time now to think about it and get their act in order, and I, I know they're all in very good shape. So I'm, I'm very confident, Giles, that we'll be making big progress next yeah. year. I, yeah. I'd just like to make an observation that, you know, the ISP still doesn't choose offshore wind uh, as one of the most efficient or therefore lowest cost ways, and so I, I, I you know keep wondering whether we're not going to end up or Victoria's not going to end up with more expensive electricity as a result of this focus on offshore wind when there's still so much onshore available. But I'd like to put that to one side and come to the government's two big policies that it took to the election uh, and as well as the National Electric Vehicle Strategy. And then, of course, the government's also had the Capacity uh, Investment Scheme, uh, which has been announced since. So there's been quite a lot going on in somewhat of a scattergun approach. <laughs> but if I could deal with the emissions... Well, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't call it scattergun. I would, I would call it doing a lot, though. I mean, it's not scattergun. I, I don't accept that um, characterisation. But I do accept there's a, a bloody lot going on. Of course, we've got a lot of catching up to do. And um, we don't have time to waste, you know, um, doing it bit by bit. Yes, that was a poor cho choice of phrase. But if I turn to the Emissions Reduction Fund, I think there's uh, been an exposure draft and comments. Um, and the principal criticism, which has been there from the beginning, or the principal comment, I think, um, 
is how how it's going to deal with new entrants and new expansion, you know, the gas expansions. And this comes to, a fr frankly, a bigger question, which I don't know that we'll get to, which is I don't quite understand what the federal government thinks about gas uh, in general. You know, gas has been the biggest marginal contributor to global emissions increase in the last decade. That is, it's it's 20% of total emissions each year, but if we look at the increase in total emissions each year globally, gas is the largest contributor to that. We've got gas expansion programs going on that will lead to more carbon emissions, and how will they fit in with the, with the safeguard scheme, and when do you expect that legislation to actually be presented to Parliament? Sure. So safeguards, um, I, I guess a few points. One, I might just pick up on one small point there, David, it's not legislation. Uh, it's regulation, uh, so I'll be doing it by regulation. There's one small, there's one small element of legislation which I've already introduced into the Parliament, which is the below the baseline crediting operation. But everything else, the tightening of the safeguards, I do by regulation, which will be disallowable by the Parliament, but it's not legislation, so it doesn't sort of go through an amendment process. Uh, I'm going to put the draft of that out, um, or if you like, my position paper. So we put out a discussion paper, which got good feedback. We've got 240 submissions. I spent several weeks going through them all with my highlighter and my post-it notes, thinking through the various options. Um, early in the new year, I'll be putting out uh, more of you know, our position paper. Uh, I'll also be saying something about the Chubb process, which is complementary. So um, that will be out in January. Um, and then that, that draft design will be out for people to have some views about. Now, in terms of new entrants, that's just one of the elements. There's two types of new entrants, if you like. There's greenfield new entrants and then there's existing facilities which become entrants via, you know, increased emissions. They might be expanding production within a, within their existing facility or something. So I'll spend a lot of time looking at new entrants and, you know, I'm not going to make the announcement here on the pod today as much as I love you guys. It's, but there will be there will be you know a, a part of the design which deals with your entrance, and I've thought about that very carefully. Uh, in relation to gas, you know, what our view is, our view is that gas is going to play a role in the system for some time to come. Because the one thing about gas is, I don't regard it as a transition fuel. I don't regard it as low emissions fuel, but I do regard it as flexible. So it is it is useful to have in the background as we're making this massive transition to eighty two percent renewables because it is much more flexible than coal. It's, you know, as you know, you can turn it on and off much more quickly. Therefore, you're not wasting emissions while, while it's burning unnecessarily. Uh, so it will have a role to play um, uh, in the system for some time, and we need to ensure that there is supply of gas to ensure it can play that peaking and firming role. While we're building the storage, which I made a big announcement about on the weekend, while we're building the transmission and not doing all that, it'll play some role. And as coal increasingly leaves the system, that's my view about gas. Um, I, I, you know, I don't believe in a gas lead recovery. I think that's, I think I've used the term bullshit publicly. Um, it was always a fraud. Um, nor do I believe you can just turn away from gas immediately. It's got a useful role to play in the system and we've got to ensure that there's enough supply, um, to the existing gas fired power stations so that they continue to play that peaking and firming role while we're building to 82% renewables, which I think you posed the question in your introduction, Giles. We will get to, but it's not easy. And just before I hand back to Giles, just finishing off on that uh, new entrance thing, uh, can can I take it that the overall cap will still continue to re to reduce within those covered facilities, no matter how many new entrants there are? I mean, you just have to yeah. reallocate everyone else somehow or other. Yeah, without with, without without announcing the design, the principle that 
um, will be requiring the 215 biggest emitters, currently 215 for the sake of the argument, um, but the biggest emitters, anybody with more than 100,000 tonnes, will be required to make an X contribution, and I'll be outlining that in my, in my draft, um, X contribution to emissions reduction. And yes, if there's fewer or more uh, facilities, then that sort of approach still applies. Now, we've had a look at things like reserves and um, things like that within the detailed design. So again, I'm not announcing that today, but uh, frankly, we've taken a pretty rigorous approach, particularly across the board, but including new entrants. I'd like to bring back to that, uh, the battery storage uh, thing that you announced because that sort of mm. um, comes to the role of gas and, and, and whether, you know, what sort of role gas will play um, in the grid of the future. It's fascinating to look at the South Australia of the past week, an average of 104% renewables over the last seven days. Gas basically sort of reduced to a role of grid services only. Its energy wasn't really needed. Its spinning machines were, but may not be in the future because one, they've got synchronous condensers there. They're going to have a new transmission link to New South Wales. And we've got the emergence of grid forming batteries. And this was the subject of your announcements on Saturday uh, for eight big batteries, uh, $2.7 billion worth of investment, seven of the new, one retrofitted which I'm sure it's probably just a bit of a tweak with the software, but anyway, who knows? Um, so battery storage is the big question, is it? Battery storage, pumped hydro, gas. Um, I'm just trying to work out what my question is here. The funding that you put in there, $162 million, about 60% more than was originally flagged. Was this because the projects, there's more of them that you found attractive and couldn't pass up, or has the cost of battery storage um, actually increased? Since no, well, it's, it, it, it's more it's more the more the former Giles. So, in relation to your question, which which is it? My, I say it's all the above. Well, this is such a big transition to eighty two percent renewables that we need all the above. We need the battery storage, we need the pumped hydro, and we need gas as the sort of safety net underpinning it. Um, so, all the above. In terms of the announcement on the weekend, um, uh, the extra funds came from the budget because I abolished, or uh, well, the government and my recommendation abolished. A scheme you might have heard of called UNGI, uh, underwriting new generation <laughs> investment. Uh, we call it we call it fungi actually for failed underwriting new generation investment. But there we go. As useless as an ashtray on a motorbike. Um, so we got rid of that uh, and put um, any of the money that was associated with that into the big battery storage program funded by Arena. So we added to that 100 million to get it up to 173 million, and that enabled Arena to go a bit further in the number of batteries that they chose through. A competitive process. Um, so that means we were able to do more batteries on Saturday because we put that money in. So as you said, one existing battery made good forming. I'm not sure whether there is a tweak of software or not, but it's an expensive tweak of software if that's what it is. Um, and then and then um, uh, seven new ones. And that's, th these are really big batteries. I mean, these are, these are big grid scale, grid forming batteries. These are game changers. Obviously, they're not all going to happen overnight. Uh, we're going to work on it over the next two years, but I'm hopeful that some get on sooner rather than later, because this is a big improvement to our storage, big improvement to reliability, uh, and you know, just underpins basically what we all understand. Sure. Um, you know, Peter Dutton says there's no battery which can work for more than a few. He just doesn't get it. He just doesn't understand the role of batteries in terms of the broader grid. We do, and we are getting on with that job together with our community batteries and our capacity investment mechanism, which I hope we get a chance to touch on. It's all it's all part of the mix because we just don't have the luxury of picking and choosing which one we're going to do. We're doing it all and we're doing it quickly. 
why don't you just go through the capacity investment uh, scheme because, because uh, it sort of has, has been announced, but I don't think it's had perhaps the attention it deserves. What, what, mm. What's it supposed to achieve and uh, by when and how much money is it? Yeah, so it's a big deal. Um, and I saw John Grimes say, uh, who we all know and respect, saw John Grimes say it was the biggest boost to renewable energy that we've had. And I think I think you might be right. Um, of all the things we're doing, this is the bigger deal. And as you know, capacity mechanisms sort of been in a too hard basket. And previous governments sort of came up with the idea, but they had a very different conception as to what it would look like than what I had. Um, I'm delighted that the states and territories unanimously signed up to our option. Uh, but I sort of understand why I did because what we've said is um, we'll come in, so we'll run the auction uh, as the Commonwealth for a capacity investment mechanism. It'll be a a collar arrangement, so very similar to contracts for difference, except they'll have a, an upper limit as well. So we'll call for bids jurisdiction by jurisdiction. So we'll work with the AEMO and each state and territory to say what are the needs in each jurisdiction. Then re renewable uh, uh, providers will be able to bid uh, in that effective reverse auction, um, which will be a collar arrangement. So they'll tell us what floor price they want. So we'll guarantee in the Commonwealth a floor price. And we'll, we'll also get them to suggest a, an upper price, which over and above which they'll share the profits with the Commonwealth. So we'll underwrite it all, not the states. The Commonwealth will be underwriting it, uh, and then uh, I'll have we'll have a competitive process in each state and territory to say, right, you want dispatchable renewables? It's got to be dispatchable. Um, we're not interested in renewables without storage. So in effect, this is another part of a storage uh, target. Uh, if you've got dispatchable renewables, we'll guarantee you a full price. You nominate. A ceiling price and the most competitive bids will win in each state and territory. Uh, I said second half of next year uh, will be when it starts, so we can do that much more quickly than the 2025 date of the original ESP capacity mechanism. That'll start second half of 2023. Might do a little bit better than that if we can. Obviously, we'll do better than that if we can, but targeted to start second half of next year. It'll run uh, it's pretty similar to the Altesta scheme in New South Wales, except we're not passing the costs on to consumers and gas isn't uh, allowed under ours. Uh, but it'll run pretty similar to that and we'll run it. Uh, we might run it parallel to the New South Wales scheme with New South Wales. A bit of detail to work through in that came, but we're um, committed to doing that. And then in each state and territory, we'll call an auction and invite people to bid. Uh, so it's a pretty, pretty big scheme. So is it, is it, do you expect then that Victoria and Queensland will sort of buy into this? Because they've kind of announced their own uh, storage targets and Queensland's coming out with big plans for pumped hydro, et cetera. So will they now adopt this particular strategy to implement those targets? Is that what you understand? Big time. Big time. They're right. very excited about it, very interested in it. Of course, it'll run, you know, they've got their targets and targets are great. They've also got some policies to help them achieve, but they see this capacity investment scheme as very much helping them achieve those targets. Absolutely. So is this going to be a bit like the ACT government um, contracts for difference where they're actually benefiting this year because high high energy prices have delivered mm. a bit of a windfall gain. They, they've kind of been protected. And you see that operating the same sort of in the same way. Um, I mean, yeah. it's almost like... It's a very similar. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, a, yeah. it's, it's, it's like a contract for difference. So we'll guarantee... So obviously, you know, I, obviously I want the option to work. So I'm not going to nominate a floor price or a ceiling price, which I think would be appropriate, even though I might have one in my head. Um, I want to see what the industry can come up with. You put in a bid and say, we want, you know, we want a floor price of this. We want to be guaranteed that this will be our minimum profit and we'll guarantee that. Mm. So that's really, really sort of 
underpinning certainty for investors to say, well, it's impossible for us to make less than this because if the price of energy falls below this rate, then the Commonwealth's going to underwrite us. And in return, we say you nominate a ceiling over and above which you'll provide a share of the profits or the profits to the Commonwealth. So you'll make, you know, all the money up until this point and then you'll hand over the profits if energy prices rise over that point to the Commonwealth. So we're really underpinning the investment decision and providing a range in which the investors know, well, we're not going to make less than this and we won't make more than that and that's just fine with us and now we can make the decision to invest in dispatchable renewables. So the Queensland government's funding uh, three, and a, uh, three and a half times the size of Snowy 2. That's what the seven gigawatts of Barumba and Pioneer uh, Burdekin amounts to with 24-hour storage and, you know, the cost of that is going to be 10 to $15 billion plus the transmission. Is that something that uh, the Commonwealth could effectively fund if the Queensland government bids, its own, bids those power stations in for a cap and a floor? Well, certainly state instrumentalities can bid, so we're very clear about that, whether it be the, the Queensland um, bodies or Western Power or the new SEC in Victoria, they can bid. Um, they'll, be, they'll, they'll be not advantaged nor disadvantaged compared to the private sector. They'll just have to put in a sharp bid. So certainly the Queensland government can consider doing that. The other, obviously, the other potential element for cooperation with Queensland's very ambitious hydro plans uh, is rewiring the nation, um, which is available for transmission and related developments. So as you know, in the rewiring the nation deal that we've done with Tasmania and Victoria, it's a combination primarily of transmission, but also some support uh, for renewable energy zones. Um, so they're the two things that Mick DeBrenny and I have talked about and will continue to talk about how the Commonwealth and Queensland can cooperate to ensure Queensland delivers its targets. Yeah, so I, I want to come back to the role of markets um, uh, in, in the federal government's uh, view at the end maybe, but mm. uh, could we just talk about rewiring the nation? I think uh, in the budget something like $8.5 billion was uh, allocated to the CEFC and of that, um, about $1 has been allocated to, to Marinus, and it turns out that Marinus is going to be owned 20% by Tasmania, 20% by Victorian government, 20% by the Commonwealth government, like the old Snowy was, more or less, or some variation of it. And yeah. how will that $1 billion be used? Will it be used to do, fund the early works, um, or, or is it just there to provide part of the overall funding, you know, once everything else has been done? So the way I said, you can look at this a number of ways, David, and you know how you might conceive it. But the way I said it's in, I conceive it is in two parts. The way I describe it, I should say better, um, you know, the way I think about it and describe the deal that we've done with the three, with the two jurisdictions, uh, Tasmania and Victoria, is there's two elements of it. There's the concessional loan, which we provide through the CFC, which basically reduces the cost uh, of the project, you know, right down to. Uh, basically, uh, no no debt servicing costs using the Commonwealth balance balance sheet, um, which makes it much more attractive for Tasmania, uh, in particular as a small jurisdiction, but also Victoria. Uh, and then there's the joint equity. So we're doing two things: we're taking joint equity and we're providing the concessional loan for Marinus, uh, as well as um, separately the Northwest Transmission Link um, in Tasmania, and then you've got the Kerrang Link in Victoria. Uh, which we're not taking equity in, but we are providing the concessional finance to Victoria for. So they're, they're the two two ways I see it. And you know, um, uh, yes, uh, there's more than there's more than one billion there, uh, David, that we've we put into Marinus and Kerrang and the whole shebang, uh, quite a bit more. 
but then I've got other announcements to make in the not too distant future uh, where we've gotten to with other jurisdictions because we're on the national play across the country. That's right. And uh, I guess what I'm interested in, particular, you know, when the federal government is advancing money to Mariners, it makes it more likely by far that it will actually happen. And similarly, VNI West has been some debate about, which is Kerrang. And yeah. I think you've allocated 750 million there, if I've, if, yeah. unless I've misread it. Uh, and I guess, do you expect that money to, to uh, it'll in, increase the certainty, but do you think it will mean those projects get built faster or on time? I mean, um, um, you, you know, there's been opposition, the social license is still debated, et cetera, et cetera. How are you feeling about getting the transmission build done if you were yeah. managing the process? Yeah, I, I think rewiring the nation ensures projects that have to be built so technically, everybody's meant to support the ISP, right? So although the Liberal and Nationals have walked away from it since the election, but they they, they at least paid lip service pre-election. Um, but projects which any sensible person would agree have to be built. The question is when and how and how and how expensive. So rewiring the nation means quicker and cheaper. Um, so yes, it does mean those projects get built more quickly, with more certainty, and with a lower cost of capital, um, so cheaper. Now then, so that's the money, if you like, sorted. So Kerrang's finance now, VNI West, Kerrang, whatever you prefer to call it, Marinus is now financed after many years of talk. Northwest Transmission Link is now financed and other announcements I'll make with other jurisdictions means those links are financed. But I agree, money isn't everything. The two big, if you think about what could then slow us down, the two big things, or if you like three big things, um, perhaps two bigger than the other one, uh, community license, social license, community support. That's important. Got to take communities with us. These are big things. Um, and communities are right to have concerns that they want addressed. And when the community says, in my experience, they say, well, the nation benefits from this, but we don't. Um, they've got a point, right? So that, that, that's got to be talked through and, and communities have to be brought with us and it has to be real consultation about routes, not fake consultation. And we're doing that. We're, refu we're reviewing the RIPT process. We can declare projects of national significance, which means that we're not trying to get around community consultation. We're trying to do it better and earlier. The other two constraints in my mind are supply chain, making sure that we're on the on the list of um, you know uh, all the materials which go into these massive transmission projects, and that's on my mind. Uh, and this helps too because we can provide. Uh, certainty as to when we'll build it and we, people can make their orders with more certainty. And then labour shortages perhaps is third on the list, um, making sure we have the, the skills and the resources labour-wise to uh, provide uh, to make sure that these things actually get built. They're the sort of three constraints. So finance ticked, um, supply chain um, uh, working on it and, and social licence um, also continuing project to make sure we get it right. I'm just wondering. Just, I've got a quick question. Um, I've got. I just want a quick question about um, pumped hydro because you mentioned about the Yankee skin. Now that was supposed to. Um, this is kind of going to this sort of mix between sort of batteries, pumped hydro, and gas. There was four projects in South Australia, which I think was sort of um, um, shortlisted by one arena program. There's also the Yankee program. Is sort of pumped hydro dead in the water in South Australia now, or is there going to be another scheme? Will that come through the sort of auctions process um, under this uh, new capacity investment mechanism? And is, is that, is that what, where you sort of, yeah, yeah. yeah is that where you repatriated the funds? 
Yeah. I'm a, I'm a big supporter of Punter. I mean, you know, the Ungies scheme was, as we would agree, I think, just a fraud. And I think they they threw some pumped hydro in as an alibi for all the gas they wanted to support. That's you know, that's what was going on there. But um, the recover, battery of the nation was in Ungi to a certain degree. So um, uh, that they, they were the, probably battery of the nation uh, was probably the big one that they put in. But we've we've helped the Tasmanian government do that through We're the Nation. So we've got different options. But certainly, um, uh, pumped hydro is dispatchable renewable. So it certainly qualifies for the capacity investment scheme. Absolutely. Mm. No, okay. And just about let's, give, let's talk about this sort of the role of the markets. I know David sort of wants to have a bite at this. And my question is, you know, given all these sort of interventions, you know, you've got the investment scheme, you've got the you've got the SEC in Victoria, you've got the Queensland government managing its own sort of storage target and owning all those um, um, power stations and the networks, and you've got the various federal government interventions such as rewiring the nation, which is supposedly there to sort of accelerate or sort of you know fuel that growth. But you've also got this sort of these price caps. Um, in the market, at least temporarily, but with a warning sign for the future. I'm just wondering, sort of, what is the role of the market in the future to provide the price signals for the investment? So, uh, I think, I think, let's think about it this way. I'm happy to come to the price caps, but it's a little bit of a separate issue. But in terms of the transition and the role of the private and and the government sectors, this is too big a transition to leave to anyone alone, in my view. I mean, getting to 82% renewables, let alone 43% emissions reduction, is the biggest economic change in our country, certainly since the war, since World War II, arguably longer. Um, and so we can't just leave it to government intervention, and nor can we just leave it to the market. You have to think about the interaction of the two, but if we just left it to the market, it's not going to happen, frankly. We, you know, we're just... I, I, I'm delighted with the amount of private sector and foreign in, investment uh, interest we're getting now since we passed the Climate Act. I mean, whether it is the proposed takeover of uh, Origin, which obviously I don't comment on, on deta in detail, but I welcome any sort of investment in renewables, or the Iberdrollers, you know, huge interest in Australia. Everybody says to me, I oh, know you passed the Climate Act, we've got, we've got the framework to deal with. So that's very important, but it's not enough. And so hence, you can see in Queensland, I think what's happened here is that people saw Queensland's very ambitious projects an ambitious plan that Anastasia and Mick put out a couple of months ago and thought, well, a lot of that can happen because they've got government ownership. So they've got hands-on levers. And I think that's what, you know, Victoria thought, well, we need our hands on our levers again. Um, so you need both. I don't see the SEC proposal in Victoria. Um, David might have a different view, but I don't see it as crowding out private investment. I see it as complementing private investment because we're going to need it all. And as long as the rules are clear, the certainty's there, you know, people know what the SEC is going to do and what it's not going to do. People know what the capacity mechanism is going to do and not do. People know what rewiring the nation is going to do and not do. It's all a compliment. It's all a compliment to the market. I want huge amounts of private sector investment in renewables and storage and, and capacity, but I also don't shy away from the need for government investment because if we just say, well, this is really important and good luck to the private sector to do it, we, we will fail. We, we won't get to 82%. Renewables, we won't get 43% emissions reduction. Uh, we need to provide certainty and stability through our Climate Act, through the capacity investment mechanism, through rewiring the nation. But also, we need there is there is no problem for direct government investment because the task is just so big. Now, um, why don't I just touch on gas caps because I've heard you guys talk about it, I think, in the last episode or the episode before on gas and coal price caps, just very briefly. I mean, this doesn't this isn't done lightly, but I mean, these are Australian resources. 
frankly. I'm not, I'm not big on economic nationalism, but I do think this is Australian gas under Australian soil, and I don't think it's acceptable to have Australian industries going broke next year, which would have happened because of gas prices, with these guys, these gas companies, just making absolutely supercharged super profits because of the war in Ukraine. If they want to do that on exports, that's one thing, but charging Australians those prices is, to me, just not acceptable. So I think it is a... It is an, uh, an unusual um, set of events which have led us to do this, but literally we would have lost industries next year who are wanting to make the transition to renewables but aren't there yet. They're still relying on gas for the moment, and their margins would have come under huge pressure next year if we let these gas prices just sit there. Gas companies would have made big profits. Industries and households would have paid the price, and um, I don't think that's okay. I, I think there's a, it's a great debate, and I, I don't agree with everything you've said, frankly. I think people like the LNG import terminal suddenly finds why, why bother if the government's going to regulate. But I don't really don't want to spend the time debating something on which we probably won't help our listeners that much. I would like to cover the other things that the government is doing. Uh, one of them is clearly electric vehicles, and so I'd like to... Uh, the fringe benefit tax thing is fantastic, but that increases demand... What I'm looking for is something that increases supply, which would be, you know, the emissions uh, in, uh, intensity for vehicles, fuel emissions. And the other um, 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 fund the government has announced, which I've got no idea what it's actually going to do or when it's going to do it, is the 15 billion National Reconstruction Fund. So I wonder if you could just cover off on those two issues. Sure, absolutely. Well, electric vehicles, yes, you're right. We've passed the fringe benefits tax cut and that's really important that's already having an impact i saw city analysis out there the other day upping their targets or their their forecasts i should say uh for electric vehicle take up in australia just off the back of the fbt cut so that's that's great for fleets and important and for the second hand market as i think we've discussed in in the past then we've got the national electric vehicle strategy actually <laughs> i'll let you in on a little secret i don't not sure you're on the line giles when we're getting ready to do this but i just mentioned to david that i had a creaky door in the backgrounds, which I go, got up and shut, but to make sure it didn't creak during the uh, recording, I put all my uh, folders of National Electric Vehicle submissions against the door. I've got about 10 folders of submissions. Uh, we had uh, about 500 submissions, which I'm still reading and working through. Um, so I've got, you won't be able to open the door until you've got through them then. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I, I, I'm through some, but not yet all. Um, so I've take this stuff pretty seriously when people have gone to the time of making a submission they should know that somebody reads it it just doesn't go off on a on a shelf somewhere so um now while i haven't finished all the 500 submissions yet i'm given to believe by my office that about 100 of them deal explicitly with fuel efficiency standards and in support of them and how you might do them um so again we've had a fair bit on um uh, in this sort of run home to Christmas. So I'm not putting the National Electric Vehicle Strategy out before Christmas, but it is high on our list. And, you know, I think I've been pretty explicit that I agree that we need to deal with supply. And I think the, the fact that Australia and Russia are the only two developed countries without fuel efficiency standards is an issue that needs to be considered and addressed. So I think we're showing we're taking that pretty seriously. Um, and that's what the National Electric Vehicle Strategy is for. But you've got to, again, give people their say. I mean, the manufacturers of Talk to them about it. Electric Vehicle Council, SEAI, uh, the, uh, automobile clubs, all of them have views, um, which I'm taking on board and thinking through with Catherine King, the Minister for Transport. And when we're when we've done that, we'll we'll come out. I think what we're showing is we like to do things 
you know, like I've done with safeguards, put out a, a consultation process, then a position paper, then further consultation. We won't, we, we move quickly, but make sure we're getting it right. And we're certainly doing that. Sorry, and then the then the, um, uh, the, uh, the National Reconstruction Fund, what's that about and timing? Oh, sorry, yeah, National Reconstruction Fund. So this, this is a fund which we went to the election with basically when we were in the middle of COVID and we thought there's going to be some rebuilding here that's necessary, which is still the case. So basically that's, that's a fund which looks at sensible co-investments, a bit like the CFC. In fact, the legislation for the National Reconstruction Fund is modelled on the CFC, which I think is a tribute to the CFC designers that 10 years later we come along and say, well, why don't we do it like the CFC? That's pretty, that's pretty unusual for a government 10 years later to say, yeah, that model still works. So, uh, and we've got 3 billion of that, up to 3 billion allocated for basically decarbonising investments. So whether it is helping companies that might be seeking to decarbonise, whether it's part of their safeguards obligations or not, um, whether it is um, new renewables investments, whether it's electric vehicle component uh, uh, manufacture or indeed ideally manu electric vehicle manufacture, whether there's some co-investment of government which can take a, a sensible investment and just make it more certain. Um, so that legislation uh, is there for all to see. It's not operating yet, um, but that's what that's about. So I think it will play a role sitting alongside uh, so, the, the uh, CFC. So, so, Chris, if, if if you had a um um like a, a lithium hydroxide factory and you wanted to convert West Australian spodumene to lithium hydroxide and build the factory in in West Australia instead of having it done in China, you could apply for some of that money, could you? In theory, yes, exactly. And it's it's not grants, so it's not sort of government largesse. It is it is concessional financing, whether it be um you know whatever form it, it it's appropriate to take in for that particular investment. But pretty think of CEFC. Uh, and put it across the economy with up to $3 billion uh, there for decarbonising renewable investments to complement the CFC money um, because there is just, as I, as I keep saying, there is just so much to do. Um, and so I, I, I actually think it, 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 it's, it, it could play an exciting role. If you think about battery manufacturer, bat manufacturer or electric vehicle manufacturer or some point along the electric vehicle supply chain, um, that's what the National Reconstruction Fund is for, certainly that element of it. And if you wanted to build, you know, a cable, sun cable to, to export stuff and you wanted some help with that, could could you also mm -hmm. apply for money that way as well for the same yeah, fund? Yes, sun cable could qualify as it could for CFC, obviously, and arena support, some of which it's already got. I was wondering, um, you went to the COP conference in uh, late November um, in Egypt, and you would have seen a lot of the things happening behind the scenes. And look, I know these COP conferences, I went to eight of them, they sort of start off with these fantastic statements that we're going to do this, we're going to do that, and then they sort of descend into sort of arm wrestling and sort of um, discussions about what they can, the wording of things they can agree on and desperately trying to find a way forward. Have you actually sort of spent time, and you'd see much more than anything a journalist or other sort of observer would see sort of behind the scenes, talking to governments, talking to the negotiators and things like that. I mean, do you come away from something like COP27 and think, yes, we can get there, but it's just going to be pretty tough in negotiations? Or do you come away with going, oh, Christ, this is so bloody hell. I don't know where we're going to get there, but we're just going to do our best <laughs> ourselves. Um, <laughs> uh, is it possible to say <laughs> both? Um, <laughs> in all seriousness, I mean, this COP was a difficult COP, as, as some of which has um, been publicly sort of aerated. Again, I think of it in a couple of ways, Giles. I think of it, there's the, the negotiations, which is, you know, sort of the official part. Um, 
And, yeah, that was difficult. But, I mean, I guess the good news is we managed to save what was there from Glasgow, which was no small thing. Um, there was a genuine, serious and coordinated attempt to water down Glasgow, which I think our listeners might be surprised. And I'll be very honest and say I was surprised. You sort of think every cop is a step forward, right? But that's not necessarily the way it goes. This cop, there was an attempt to make it a step back. But we, um, together with... Who, who were they? Who were they? Well, I mean, I think the, the, the main... Most of it was done behind closed doors. But I think I think the petro states, you know, the, the big oil states mm. were, uh, were pretty active. And, you know, it was a, a cop in, in Egypt, so they, they were sort of, um, if you like, key stakeholders. Um, I think that's prob- probably um, where most of the action was. But then mm. we in Canada and the United Kingdom and the United States and AOSIS got together and said, well, we're not having this. Um, and so we did have to work hard, but we did that. And then we managed to make the step forward on loss and damage, um, which is not yet done, but we're, it's the most, it's the biggest step forward on loss and damage we've, we've had. And we, again, you know, I'm proud of the role we played there. It was sort of, if you like, a, I wouldn't overstate our role. We weren't the key, the key player, but we were a player in building a bridge between the Pacific Island states and the big developed countries to say, let's let's sort out a way through here. You know, I was talking to both. I was talking to Pacific Islands and the United States and the EU to say, you know, we can come up with a way forward here. Um, um, a question about it. We've, um, Australia's looking to host uh, the copy in 2026, I think it is. Um, mm. You also were quoted as saying there that, you know, if and if it's not 1.5 degrees and something like that, you know, then what are we doing here? You know, you know that's what we've got to offer. Is 2026, if Australia does hope the copy, is that the time for Australia's policy to be aligned specifically to that target rather than just sort of like a, a net zero by 2050 sounds great, but it's not really 1.5 degrees. Um, will 2026 be the time to, to align those targets to 1.5? Well, uh, well, I don't see this relating to the COP bid. The COP bid's going well. Um, Turkey is our competitor uh, at this point, and we're getting a lot of support. Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, I feel good about the COP bid. And the COP bid is, I mean, you know, long, long way to go between now and 2026 to determine what our theme of our COP presidency would be if we hosted, uh, as I hope and, and, you know, have some confidence we will. I'd say this, Charles, about if you like your point about our targets, etc. Obviously, every in Australia under this government, every day is a step forward. We've got a lot of catching up to do. I mean, people focus rightly on 2030. You mentioned 2050, um, which is important, but it's really, if you like, the destination. It's how you get there that counts. Um, and, and how quickly? <laughs> and how quickly? Absolutely. And my point about 2030 is we've left it very bloody late uh, to be getting to a 2030 target by starting in 2022. I mean, 84 months. For all these big transitions that we're talking about, you know, all the things we've talked about, a four months is not long. So you don't have any room for slippage. And uh, 43% emissions reduction in 84 months is actually hugely ambitious. And I think that was clear in the climate. One thing we haven't talked about is the climate statement I did in early December to the Parliament, the first annual climate statement. It was a very frank and forthright, if you've read it, as I'm sure you guys have, um, sort of statement about where we're at and how we'll get there. And it shows we're not currently at 43 we're currently at 40 um and we'll get to 43 with some of the other things the government has announced but not yet implemented so i think that shows that it's not a it's not a lazy target it's ambitious 43 i know you know you can say we should be 50 or 75 or something but it's my job to actually not just set a target but to achieve it right so i get that i don't get the luxury of saying it should be this number i have the task for saying it will be this number and here's how we're going to get there but then you get to sort of well what's next after 2030 is 2035 
which we do have more time to influence than than eight years, obviously. So we'll deal with that. So I don't see it as related to the cop beard, but I do see it as um, every, playing massive catch up, starting very late, and and doing it all at once. And so hence everything we've talked about and much more. You know, we haven't talked about emissions reduction in the national energy objective. We haven't talked about um, a whole bunch of things that we're, we've been doing and will continue to do. Um, you know, all this is a, just a constant task. So just on that, Chris, uh, you know, recently we've done a couple of podcasts looking at what's happening in Europe and the United States. And I must say, I was very impressed with the United States and the tax incentives, and they're going to get electricity mm. from wind and solar to consumers at what the modelling says is 15 US dollars a megawatt hour. Uh, you know, the concern when I talk around the industry here, particularly to the wind people, is that with all the global expansion, Australia and the, you know, five, six, seven years it takes to do wind farm planning uh, or permitting, that we really just not have the supply. There's lots of demand now from the state schemes, but can we actually deliver that wind? And outside of the transmission, what's the federal government, uh, you know, are you happy that you have enough um control over as you say you're responsible but you don't really have much control over the supply yeah. process do you I, I think that's a valid concern david i, I do agree with that concern I'm, I'm confident we'll we'll get there but it is a very genuine issue and concern you have and i was just about to say before we got slightly sidetracked but i mean the other advantage of the cop the other thing about the cop is not just the negotiations and us chairing the the finance negotiations which i did etc um, but it's also obviously opportunity to catch up with colleagues and you know friends I've made, my counterparts around the world, and compare notes you know, more informally and bilaterally. And you do compare notes on all these things and talk about how you're tackling these problems. So whether it is you know James Shaw in New Zealand or Stephen Gabol in Canada or Rob Jetton in the Netherlands or John Kerry or Alex Sharma, you know all people I talk to a lot. Um, you're comparing notes on all these things, but. Um, in relation to your question, yes, I agree it's a concern or a, a, an issue to be addressed. We're doing a couple of things. Firstly, um, I chair the Quad Energy Ministers, so Australia, India, Japan, and the United States. We've started a Quad Energy Ministers stream, and I chair that, and that is mainly the main thing we've decided we can add most value on is supply chain and how we're going to work with each other and do things like friendshoring so that, you know, if, if we make a decision that we might not make something here, but it's a good idea for us, for the United States or India to work on it so that we've got trusted supply chains, um, uh, that's that's one element. So we've got more work to do there. That work is progressing, and we're in charge of the supply chain um, work stream. Uh, then also, in relation to the Inflation Reduction Act, which I agree with you, David, is an excellent thing, excellent for the United States, excellent for the planet, good for us, but also but also a challenge for us because if we're not careful, we'll hear a great big sucking sound of renewable energy investment towards the United States, right? Now, that's not the United States' intention. They know they can't do it all alone. I mean, again, this is the advantage of international engagement. So my American counterparts say, yeah, this is great, but we're not entirely sure how we're going to get the job done. We need your help. We know you're great on critical minerals. You're great on, you know, can you add more value? We need you to do more. There's some concessions in the Inflation Reduction Act for countries like Australia to help so that we can play a role. So I've asked Alan Finkel um, through the uh, uh, the advisory council that he chairs, which has the heads of Arena and Shamara from Macquarie and a few others on it, um, to prepare for me and the Cabinet an Inflation Reduction Act strategy about how we can best interact with the Inflation Reduction Act to help America achieve its aims and to help us 
make more things in Australia, for example. So we'll get that work soon. Um, so uh, there's plenty of uh, plenty of work to do there. But I do agree with you. I mean, as I said about transmission supply chain, of course, we're a long way from a lot of things. And because we're not the world's biggest market, we can't walk in and say, right, Australia's here now. I know we've stuffed around for 10 years, but now we're going to build all this transmission and now we're going to build all these batteries. We want you to supply us. It doesn't work like that. So, yes, we do have some issues to address, and uh, but we are on the job. Um, I think we've run out of time that uh, we're allocated, so we do appreciate it. As you say, uh, there are so many things to discuss, and we probably could have gone into each of the subjects that we have brought up in, in, in greater detail. But, look, a fantastic wrap-up. Could have. And, um, could have. Could have bought our, our listeners and whittlers um, if we had, perhaps. But I know we've got a very switched-on and engaged listenership here. Well, you do, I should say. I'm a guest, but I'm a listener as well as a guest. Um, but, look... Uh, I'm very pleased with what we've done. You know, we've been in office just a bit over six months now, um, which is not long. Um, so I'm pleased with all the things we've ticked off. When you think about the NDC, the Climate Act, rewriting the nation, $20 billion is no small thing. Marinus is no small thing. Safeguards, the good progress, national agri vehicle strategy, all that. I'm pleased with it, but I'm not satisfied. We've got an enormous amount of work to do over the next two and a half years and beyond. I, uh, I, I really want to be climate change and energy minister for a long time. I've got a lot to do, and um, we're just we're just getting started, really. But good to give you guys and the listeners a bit of a six monthly wrap up. So last time I told a joke, I, I could hardly tell one this time. But when I look in the mirror, I'm reminded of the old psychiatrist joke. What did one psychiatrist say when he saw the other one in the street? And the answer is, how am I? And I think if you were to do that after six months, Chris, you'd probably be pretty happy with the answer, notwithstanding all the kerfuffle about um, the role of market. So. Uh, I really enjoyed this uh, discussion. Thanks very much. Thank you, David. Thank you, Giles. And thank you, Chris. Um, Chris Bowen, the Federal Energy Minister, of course. Um, thank you, David, as well, for not just today, but the whole year. I think we're just about going to get to one million listens for the year for the Energy Insiders podcast, which is just a fantastic achievement. And thanks, of course, to all our listeners out there. Um, thanks to our sponsors, Pylon and Evergen. And we'll be back in a few weeks. We've got a couple of... Um, interviews in the bag, which will roll out um, in mid to late January, and we'll be back with a regular sort of weekly update at the end of that month. Um, everyone, have an enjoyable break, and see you all in 2023. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.